0: In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to finish up this week's series of talks on education and why you should care even if you don't have kids in college or kids in the local public schools. And I'm going to cover this topic by sharing with you the history of American education and how we got into the mess we're in right now. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's rebellion. As you know, the topic for the last several days has been education. I've kind of decided that this was the week to grind my axe, I suppose. And the reason um, I've done that is primarily because it's the political season for candidates to start announcing that they're interested in leading education in the state of Oklahoma, and likewise in other states. The position here in Oklahoma is called the superintendent for public instruction position. It's currently held by Joy Hoffmeister, and there are three candidates who have announced that they want that job. They would like to be her successor. And as I said to you in one of the shows two or three episodes ago, I don't find any of the three candidates that have announced to be worthy yet. And the reason for that is they're saying nothing about the important ideas. It's all just political spin, political blah, 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 blah. I want to continue the excellence of education in the state of Oklahoma so that all of our students can succeed. Well, who doesn't? Who doesn't want to do that? Well, first of all, how are you measuring excellence and how do you measure success? Is excellence and success going to be predicated upon critical theory, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, the rainbow cabal of LGBTQIA, BLM alphabet soup of identity politics. Where do you stand on all of this? Are you going to support House Bill 1775, which in the state of Oklahoma is a law that now exists. It's been signed into law by Governor Stitt that makes it illegal for any state-funded teacher In Oklahoma, to teach that one race is inferior to another race, which critical race theory by definition does. It does treat one race as inferior to another race. Are you going to embrace the 1619 Project, which says that our nation was founded not on self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our Creator, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but rather on slavery? the original sin of the United States of America. Do you believe our public schools should teach that our Constitution is a good thing or a bad thing? How about our Declaration of Independence? How about the Bill of Rights? How about the very premise of a United States of America versus a divided States of America? Should we stand for the unity of veritas, of truth, Is truth an objective reality that binds us together, or is it nothing but uh, a social construct, the product of privilege, and that your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and never the twain shall meet? What do you think about these big ideas? How about the Judeo-Christian heritage of the United States? Things that I've talked about on this show. Proof. In the Founding Fathers and their quotes from Benjamin Franklin and, yes, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and multiple signers of the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Constitution, boldly stating that we are grounded in a biblical worldview. Should that be taught in our public schools? These are questions we have to ask of the candidates that want to lead us, and these are questions for which we should demand specific answers, and not this fuzzy political mumbo-jumbo about, I stand for the success of all of our students, and I believe we should continue our tradition of excellence in the state of Oklahoma. Those comments mean absolutely nothing. Now, I've tried to tempt you to care about this subject, even if you don't have kids in school right now, because of the importance of education to the propagation of ideas in our culture. Because ideas are the binding glue that hold us together. And ideas are also the divisive rhetoric that can tear us apart. The ideas that we inculcate and our progeny and the next generation of leaders in the United States will define the United States. And if we don't believe that, why are we paying for public education in the first place? If we really want to distance ourselves from that fact, if our school leaders want to somehow wash their hands of the mess that we see in the daily news, then they are tacitly admitting that what they're doing in their tax-funded schools In their tax-funded roles is of little consequence, as if the ideas they're teaching really don't matter. Well, they clearly do. And as I said in one of the previous shows, our schools have a disproportionate influence over our youth. It could be argued that your kids and your grandkids spend more time in their schoolroom than they do in your living room. They spend more time in the classroom than they do in the church. It's the teacher, it's the local school that has more influence over their development, their intellectual, their cognitive, their emotional, and their spiritual development than anybody else. Quantitatively, that just seems to be a fact. So you should care. You should care about education because you should care about the future of our country. And as we look to the future, I think we need to look to the past and understand the history of education. Because I've said a thousand times over on this show, if you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to make mistakes in the present and the future. Let's take a break and acknowledge our sponsors. And when I get back, I'm going to give you a brief history lesson of American education, where we came from, How did we get to the situation we're in right now, and what can we do about it? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. As you know, in yesterday's show, I shared with you several of the founding mottos of our oldest institutions in the United States, the seminal schools, those most important institutions that have been around for several hundred years. And I shared these mission statements and these mottos with you for one key reason, one obvious reason. I wanted to give you proof that American education from its very birth was grounded in a biblical worldview. I started out with Harvard's mission statement for Christ and the church. And then there was Princeton's. I restore life to the dead. And Yale's, to know God and Jesus Christ and to lead a godly and sober life. I went through all of these various different institutions, and I shared with you what they actually believed when they were chartered and when they were founded. I talked about Dartmouth that was founded to Christianize the Native American tribes, and its motto even to this day is, The Voice of One Crying in the Wilderness, clearly a biblical reference. I talked about Columbia University and how it was inspired by Colonel Lewis Morris and how it was founded to propagate the gospel in foreign parts because it was established by the missionary arm of the Church of England. And there was an argument that it was needed in the state of New York because it was a perfect location to influence those Native American tribes. The university's motto for Columbia was taken directly from Psalm 36, verse 9. In thy light shall we see light. I went on and then I talked about several other institutions. Emory University. The Wise Heart Seeks Knowledge, Valparaiso University, In Thy Light We See Light, and even the University of California, Fiat Lux, Latin for Let There Be Light. All of this language is biblical language because the American Academy, the Ivory Tower, was built on the foundation of a biblical worldview. But here's the thing, and now we're going to get into this history lesson. All of this started to change in the latter half of the 19th century. And the reason for that was money. Millions of dollars from wealthy benefactors and then a burgeoning federal government started to change the very nature of education. There was this infusion of capital and it brought with it many different influences and a new focus and a new intent. I shared with you yesterday the difference between the British model, which was a focus on morality and the inculcation of character in students, versus the Germanic model (German, Germanic model), which was a focus on science. Now, neither of those are bad. And both of those should be part of the contemporary Ivory Tower, today's schools. We should focus on science, clearly, because we don't even understand biology and physiology any longer. We can't logically and empirically say that a female is a female and a male is a male any longer. So clearly, we need to be doing a better job of teaching science to our students. But we also need to recognize that all of these discussions are moral in nature. And if we don't teach character, our culture is corrupt. So we started shifting from the British model to the German model. And this meant that, how should I say it? Um, Self-directed, specialized scholarship with total intellectual freedom Total freedom, no doctrinal distinctives and no boundaries of dogma became the paradigm for education in the United States. So the German model was viewed as superior and the traditional British model, the liberal arts model, which was based upon the classics and focused on personal morality and philosophical consistency and theological depth and civic duty and individual Integrity, all these things were out and the German model was in. And I told you yesterday that the first institution in the United States that was explicitly founded on the German model was Johns Hopkins, which was founded in 1876. It was, as far as I know, and I believe I'm accurate here, it was the first institution to be based on the dramatic model. And its focus was on science, a good thing, and on research, a good thing, and it expanded graduate programs, a good thing, and it offered professional studies in medicine and engineering rather than focusing on religion and morality or logic or rhetoric. So American education as a whole, through the course of the latter latter part of the 19th century and the entire 20th century, became more utilitarian than religious. That's an important point there. American education shifted from religious to utilitarian, and much more focus on economic and social needs than on philosophical and ethical studies. Now, now you're starting to understand why today's show matters. In 1876, we shifted. We shifted from ethical and religious and moral studies, from philosophy and religion, to economic, utilitarian. And scientific research and morality not only became secondary it became subjective because you couldn't test it you couldn't taste it you couldn't see it you couldn't touch it you couldn't prove morality in a test tube and therefore it wasn't worthy of academic study any longer so a good way for me to summarize this is with the founding of Johns Hopkins and the clear shift from the British model to the German model, we find that professional credentials became more important than Christian character in the faculty. That's one of the key distinctions. Prior to that time, Christian character was held as being paramount in the faculty and the administration of our institutions. But now, all of a sudden, That became secondary at best because professional credentials carried the day. And even state universities quickly started to adopt this model. By the early 1900s and as we shift into the uh, mid-1900s, this next generation of educators, they continued to embrace this secular over sacred model of education, the material over the moral um, by 1908 for example the standard American University was philosophically and pedagogically committed to objective naturalistic inquiry detached from any denominational or religious restraints and as the church saw culture and the university shifting towards scientism and modernism and abandoning morality and religion, the church tried to do something about this. So it started establishing its own church-related schools, and thus you had the birth of so many Christian institutions during that era. The university that I used to be president of, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, was founded in 1906. Well, isn't that interesting? It was founded at the exact same time that this shift in education in the United States was taking place. Does that make sense? So American higher education, as well as secondary and elementary education, was being secularized and the moral boundaries were blurring, if not being completely erased, because Those boundaries, prior to the German model, were believed to have been endowed to us by our creator. Self-evident truths, objective realities, moral significance was something that was stable and not in flux with culture. So, God-given truths, in other words, common sense, natural law, and intellectual sanity carried the day until we shifted from the British to the German model. But here's the irony. As we shifted away from moral absolutes, we also shifted away from anything being absolute. And I've talked about it over and over again on this show. If you don't have some sort of measuring rod outside of those things being measured, sooner or later you can do no measuring. And because education has disparaged the objective reality of God's revelation, again, natural law, common sense, sense that is common, self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our creator rather than postmodern constructs that are made up by us as we go along, we've come to the point where we don't have that measuring rod any longer. And a good Classical liberal education, which used to be open to engaging all ideas because we believed that there was truth with a capital T to judge the debate, now finds itself at the mercy of a bunch of self absorbed snowflakes who feel that their feelings should trump all of the facts in any given debate. And if they don't like what you're saying, then you should be silenced, you should be canceled. Your ideas are verboten if they find them to be uncomfortable and challenging. And thus you find yourselves in the midst of this snowflake rebellion on our college campuses and even in our high schools and our junior highs right now. Here's the point. Historically in America, again, up until the early 1900s, some would say the mid-1900s, a good education historically in America was a classical liberal education, an education for liberty, an education in freedom. And we understood that if you were going to be a free people, you had to have some moral fences. And one of the responsibilities of education was to teach those moral boundaries. A classical liberal education was open to engaging all ideas because there was a moral framework for judging those ideas. And that moral framework was called TRUTH with a capital T. It wasn't about me, and it wasn't about you, and it wasn't about self-absorbed snowflakes. And the irony here is it's, it's the left's refusal to debate. It's their refusal to debate these ideas now that is resulting in the very collapse of liberal education. The liberals are committing suicide. They're the ones responsible for the collapse of the ivory tower, not the conservatives. And the case in point is this. The University of California, Berkeley, the birthplace of the free speech movement, now won't allow free speech. They shut down Ben Shapiro when he comes to their campus to try to talk. And then we have DePaul University, where conservative students were arrested for handing out pocket constitutions. And the list goes on and on. It, you can't make this stuff up. You know, I've said it over and over and over again. One of my mantras on this show is that when you get rid of the big laws, you don't get liberty, but you get thousands and thousands of little laws. That's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. You don't get liberty when you get rid of the laws. You're going to get anarchy. And you get a bunch of small laws. And that is what we've seen in the daily news in recent days and years. This is what we have on today's campuses, whether they be high schools or colleges. No regulations on profanity, but countless regulations on legitimate political speech. More and more little laws because we don't recognize the big laws. There's no such thing as sinful limitations on sexual License. So what do we get? A bunch of sexual licentiousness that requires us to have a Byzantine legal catechism to define consent. We hear of the endless joys of tolerance and the endless claims of microaggressions that assume that everyone, or at least the privileged minority groups, everyone is expected to be rightly offended and intolerant of everyone else's intolerance all the time. It's so self-refuting. It's such nonsense. We've forgotten. We've forgotten that good education, American education, should be about perpetuating the big ideas from the big books, and that true liberty comes when we are liberated from subjectivism by the objective realities of those self-evident truths, That was the point of American education, oh, about five minutes ago in the course of human history. But we've abandoned that. We've abandoned all of that. And here's my argument. Here's my argument. Like the prodigal son that I mentioned yesterday in yesterday's show, the parable of the prodigal son, it's time for the American Academy to recognize that we've squandered this inheritance This rich inheritance of moral education, of good education, of education that's grounded in the pursuit of truth, because truth is an objective reality, not a postmodern construct, not about your feelings. It's about the big ideas, the right ideas, the beautiful ideas, the true ideas, the good ideas. That education isn't supposed to make you feel safe, but it's supposed to make you good. But rather than pursuing this goodness as a first thing, today's schools seem to be striving to be little more than training grounds for progressive malcontents. All the protests and all the marches that are supposedly about freedom and inclusivity, are they? Are they really? I mean, you see the hypocrisy in their agenda. They don't want freedom. They don't want to be inclusive. They don't want to be tolerant. At the end of the day, progressive students, the students we've produced in our schools, because our schools hold these progressive ideas to be paramount, they don't want more freedom. They want the government to intrude on everything and to redefine everything, redefine what's right and what's wrong and to do so with force, and it's happening in your own backyard. Like I said, it's time for us to recognize that our heritage is better than this. Our inheritance was better than this. We've squandered the goodness, the beauty, the truth of the American Academy, of our American school system, and we've sold that rich inheritance For a mess of porridge. We've given up the beauty of American education, the goodness of American education, the righteousness and the truth of American education, the morality of American education. We've given up the pursuit of God for the worship of government. We've given up our freedom for safety. We've given up intellectual liberty for the ideological fascism of false tolerance. We've given up the purity of the sciences, where we now are declaring that math is a postmodern construct of white privilege and that biology and physiology and genetics and DNA can't really be measured after all and that if you want to pretend you're something you're not, then we're going to celebrate that rather than to confront that. This is not what education should be. And if we allow our schools to continue down this path, then, as I said in the previous shows, who can argue with me when I say our culture is lost if our schools don't care about teaching, what's good and what's true and what's beautiful rather than what's politically correct and what's in vogue and what's popular at any given moment. You know, this chaos is going to be corrected. It can't continue much longer. And it will either be corrected by us returning home and saying we're sorry and asking for forgiveness And reclaiming our rich inheritance. Or someone else will step in and say, I'll clean up the mess for you. And that someone else will be a despot and be a tyrant that no one will be happy with in the end. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. We have to return to our heritage, our inheritance of truth with a capital T if we're to make sense of this mess and to correct it. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.